Good morning. <laughs> so great to be with you all this morning. Uh, visitors, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for being here at 4th Avenue, where we do things like this. Um, but seriously, thank you for being here. If you have any questions about 4th Avenue, we'd love to get to know you and your family and love on y'all a little bit. And I want to give a shout out to Nikki for last week. She did a great job, brought the house down, talking about envy. <clears throat> so thank you so much for that. But we're, con- we're continuing this series. Every few months or so, there is this strange phenomenon that happens in the Dingus household where we start noticing that Tupperware keeps piling up in our fridge more and more and more. And simultaneously, the amount of Tupperware in our drawers gets smaller and smaller and smaller. We have no idea how this is happening. But every few months or so, there comes a point where our fridge starts looking like this, but less organized and fresh, for sure. And me and Abby might make a couple comments to each other, man, fridge is getting full. Well, anyway, um, and we just keep waiting and waiting and waiting until we get to a point where we can no longer Tetris our way into putting something else in there. And that may or may not be the current state of our fridge. But we have the seasonal clean out the fridge party. We get to have the fun science experiment to see what three-month-old casserole looks like and smells like after it's been sitting in there for a little while. And then we look at each other and we vow that we will not do this again. And the cycle just happens all over again. (laughs) We knew what we had to do. But we continually would walk away from it until we were actually forced to deal with it. And boy, don't we love to walk away from the things that we know we need to do. Whether that's something like household chores, or maybe backing out of a commitment whenever something else better comes up, or avoiding having that hard conversation with a spouse or a friend that we know we should be having, but we just keep kicking it down the road. Or instead of really facing how we're feeling in our emotions, we turn to something to distract ourselves instead of addressing what that is. We see this play out in so many ways. And though we may not see things like this as all that bad, these are all a part of an extremely nasty and perhaps surprising vice. Today we're looking at the sin of sloth. And no, I'm not talking about the cute animal that dangles from trees. It's very different than that. Whenever you first think of sloth in the sinful kind of way, what is the first image that comes to your mind? Maybe it's the person that just spends all day on the couch and doesn't do anything, doesn't have any responsibilities, and just wastes away. Or maybe you get an image like Proverbs 19, verse 24. It says, the lazy man buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it to his mouth again. So imagine someone reaching into a big thing of cheese balls and being like, yeah, I don't think I can do this. This is too much work. Someone, can you just throw some of these in my mouth, right? Oftentimes, people have used sloth and laziness as synonyms. And if that were the case, some might question, does laziness deserve to be in a list of vices like pride and envy and vainglory and greed and lust? Like, wouldn't it have been great if some corrupt politicians and murderers were a little more lazy, right? I mean, if laziness was the original sin, we'd still be in the garden. However, sloth is much bigger in scope than just laziness. And sometimes what we call laziness is actually godly rest. So what is it? As Rebecca DeYoung says, sloth expresses pernicious or harmful apathy, comfortable indifference to duty, 
and neglect of others' needs. It looks like not accepting responsibility, having this eh, whatever sort of approach to life, a callousness to the evil and the injustice in the world, an outright refusal to love whenever that's what we should be doing. It is an apathy, a carelessness towards the good that we should be doing. And where many of the sins that we've talked about in this series so far and what we will talk about is the inability to say no to something that we should, sloth is the refusal to say yes to the good that God has for you. So yes, the person who spends all their days on the couch and totally neglects all their responsibilities, that's one way to look at sloth. But another way is the workaholic that, sprint, that spends all of their time and energy distracted by their work and refuses to prioritize their relationships with their spouse, their kids, their friends. And those are just two examples, but really there are innumerable ways in which sloth takes form. As a reminder with this series, I think it's good to bring this up, especially as we're kind of in the midpoint of the series, that this series is not for you to be listening to share with other people and be like, oh, I know so-and-so really struggles with this. It'd be great if I passed that along. No, this is for you. This is for me. We are looking inside of ourselves. We are looking at our hearts. We are not listening to bring judgment on somebody else. We're looking at the ugly parts of what is inside of us. And that's what we're doing with sloth today. And one of the clearest examples of sloth in Scripture, to me, is Jonah. Jonah was a prophet of Israel. And it might be kind of surprising that in a series where we're talking about enemies, we're talking about villains in the Bible, that a prophet of God would be mentioned. And though we may love the flannel graphs of Joseph being swallowed by a whale and spit up and talking about the power of God and his sovereignty, which, yeah, that's great, amen. Jonah himself is not a very good prophet. <laughs> so let's get into it. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, get up and go to the large city of Nineveh and preach against it, for their sin has come up before me. <clears throat> So Jonah gets a very clear command to go to Nineveh, and that's significant, because Nineveh is seen as one of the great enemies of Israel. They're seen as these bloodthirsty, vindictive, barbarian-type people, and Scripture portrays them as such, and also surrounding literature portrays them as such. So if Israel was praying for them, it would have not been for their repentance, but for their destruction. So as you can imagine, delivering a negative message to your bloodthirsty enemy may not be super high on the priority list for Jonah. He might be trying to avoid that entirely because one, he doesn't want them to harm him and two, he doesn't want anything good to come their way. So here we see Jonah's response in verse three. But Jonah ran away from the Lord going toward Tarshish, which say Tarshish five times fast. <clears throat> it's, a, it's a hard one. He went down to Joppa and found a ship which was going to Tarshish, Jonah paid money and he got on the ship to go with them to get away from the Lord. Jonah's response here is not obedience, but sloth, running away from the good work that God has for him to do. So he flees, which Tarshish is the furthest place away of the known world of where Nineveh was. So he goes in the literal opposite direction of where he was supposed to. He takes his first ticket out of there and gets as far away as he can. And as we see here, 
Sloth results in escapism. Whenever we know the things that we ought to do, but instead we choose to run. We choose to flee. Maybe that's not literally running away, but maybe that means escaping to Netflix, or video games, or fantasy football, or Instagram, or shopping, or work, or alcohol, whatever our choice distraction is. We care more about these insignificant things than we do about restoring broken relationships with people, than we care about our own relationships with God. We often run away from what God is specifically leading us into. If we continue in the story in verse 4, it says, And the Lord sent a powerful wind upon the sea, and there was such a big storm that the ship was about to break up. The sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God. They threw the things that were in the ship into the sea so that it would not be so heavy. But Jonah had gone below in the ship and had lain down and fallen asleep. Since he was neglecting the Lord and he chose to sail away, God sends this powerful storms and everyone's crying out to their God except the prophet of God, which is interesting. And people are ditching their livelihoods. The things that are putting food on the on their table for their family. They're throwing away their cargo, trying to keep the ship afloat. But here, Jonah's not helping them. He just goes down below and takes a nap. Jonah knew God was behind this storm. But he didn't care enough to respond accordingly. He didn't care if others were suffering around him because of his own actions. Which shows us that sloth is apathetic towards love. As such, some have argued that the opposite of love, it's not hatred, but actually apathy. That you don't even care enough to be mad at me. And on the flip side then, the way of love includes empathy. Caring about somebody enough to enter into whatever pit that they are in. Whatever hardship that they are in. And joining them in that. So one of the keys of walking and living like Jesus is actually becoming people of empathy. Caring whenever somebody else, particularly those in close proximity, our neighbors, are hurting. I had a mentor tell me that he thinks that more divorces happen because of sloth than anything else. Because the person with sloth resists the effort day after day after day, whatever it takes to keep the bonds of love strong. That instead of doing the hard work of conflict and forgiveness and accepting responsibility when we have been wrong. People would rather sleep on the couch. People would rather run away. People would rather stay at work for long hours and never come home. People would rather find another partner than do the hard work of reconciliation. But that's just one way to look at this. And again, there's so much grace. There's so much grace. There's no shame in me saying that. But another way that we look at this can be in our indifference as we pass by the poor and the marginalized and the homeless in our community and meanwhile, we're getting so worked, on, worked up in social media about all sorts of stuff. But whenever we're passing the people, the flesh and blood people that we actually have some influence over, we just are, eh, whatever. There are so many ways that apathy towards love can look. In verse 6, it says, So the captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. It may be that your God will care about us and we will not die. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let's draw names so we can find out who is to blame for this trouble. 
So they drew names, and Jonah's name was drawn. I think it's really telling that Jonah even let these people play this game of casting lots, right? Because he knew that he was guilty. And I think if somebody else's name was drawn, he would have been more than happy to let that person take the fall, let that person take the blame. And I imagine whenever his name was drawn, he just kind of looks up to heaven and pouts. Like, oh, come on. Which this is showing us that sloth lets others take the blame. Having the blame come our direction. That we're going to see if there's a way that that can happen. And it feels like that if blame is coming our way, how quickly as people do we try to find an excuse or become defensive to try to explain it all away? I know I, for one, am guilty of this one. If we keep reading in verse 8, it says, Then they said to him, Now tell us, who is to blame for this? What is your work? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Just all these sorts of questions. And Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were filled with fear and said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was running away from the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to make the sea quiet down for us? For the storm was getting worse. Jonah said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will stop, or then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that this bad storm has come upon you because of me. The men rode hard to return to land. They didn't want to do that, right? But they could not, for the wind was blowing even worse against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We beg you, O Lord, do not let us die for what this man has done. And do not let us become guilty for killing someone who is not to blame. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the storm stopped. Then the men feared the Lord very much. They gave a gift in worship to the Lord and made promises to him. So here the truth comes out. And these sailors, they're not even the ones that are accusing Jonah once the lot is cast, and it shows that it's him. They're asking who is to blame. And they're not the ones that advise, hey, how about we throw you overboard? That's Jonah's suggestion. Instead, what we see from these sailors is a more pious and worshipful response than the prophet of God. <laughs> and they ask, how could you do this? How could you make us be in danger for something that you have done? But Jonah's response of being thrown in shows us that he would rather die and do something good for his enemies. Which, again, shows us that sloth takes the easy way out. This whole journey for Jonah up to this point has been the path of least resistance. Outright rejecting God's command, running in the opposite direction, wishing for death over doing what he should be doing in the first place. He wanted to do what was easy instead of the hard work that God had for him. And I feel like right now we live in the time of the easy way out. We seek the path of least resistance all the time. And instead of talking about how we're feeling, what's going on under the surface, we would rather go to bed angry. Instead of turning to God in our sorrow, we turn to something like alcohol. Instead of actually reading the book, we turn to spark notes to give us a quick summary of the book for our classes. I know I got through... A lot of assignments by doing that, guilty. But we take the easy way out a lot. 
So Jonah is thrown overboard and perhaps is expecting his death to be imminent because, you know, in the open ocean, it's going to be pretty tough to survive that one. And God spares his life via a big fish coming and swallowing him. And as he is sitting in the belly of the fish and not being digested, I'm sure he's putting two and two together here that, again, this must be God working. And God gave him a gift that was probably torturous for Jonah. Silence and solitude for three days. He had nowhere to turn, nothing to escape to, no distractions, I guess maybe besides the smell or whatever else is going on in there. But he was just there, and he had to address what was going on in his mind and what was going on in his heart and all the ugliness and brokenness that was there. And in that place of silence and solitude, he realizes what he's done. He repents. He turns to the Lord and worships him for sparing his life. And then the fish vomits him out to dry land. And then God then tells him to go preach to Nineveh and preach about their coming destruction. And this wasn't a destruction's coming unless you repent. That was not a part of it. It was one of the shortest sermons. Some of y'all might be like, please, we love those sermons. Um, But going to Nineveh, he just says, 40 days, you're going to be destroyed. There's no, unless you repent. (laughs) But what we see from the enemies of God's people is repentance full-blown, full-scale repentance of every single person, and even their cattle somehow. Don't know how that works. But in that, God saw it, and he showed mercy to them. Full mercy. And Jonah throws an absolute fit. If we jump to chapter 4, it says, But Jonah was not pleased at all, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said you would do while still in my own country? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. (laughs) For I knew that you are a kind and loving God who shows pity. I knew that you are slow to anger and are filled with loving kindness, always ready to change your mind and not punish. So now, oh Lord, take my life from me. For death is better to me than life. A little bit of drama. And the Lord said, Have you any reason to be angry? Then Jonah left the city and sat to the east of the city where he made a tent for himself and sat in its shadow until he could see what would happen in the city. So Jonah is upset. And he explains why he ran from God in the first place because he knew God's character. He knew that God was one that was loving and kind and merciful and not quick to punish And he was terrified of him doing that for his enemies. So he goes outside the city to pout and mope that God spared Nineveh. Which shows us that sloth loathes in self-pity. When things don't go our way, oftentimes we sulk. We pout and we want other people to pout with us. We want other people to be in despair like we are in despair. We point all the fingers of everything that's happening out there. That's why I'm in this state. I've been dealt a bad hand. But when we're doing that, we're not doing the hard work of questioning, you know, maybe there is something off in me. 
Maybe there's something in my heart that needs to die. Maybe I need to change. Maybe the problem isn't necessarily with everyone out here, but it's me. We keep reading in verse 6, it says, And the Lord God made a plant grow up over Jonah to cover him from the hot sun and to stop his suffering. Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at the beginning of the next day, God sent a worm to destroy the plant and it dried up. When the sun came up, God sent a hot east wind and the sun's heat came upon Jonah's head so that he became weak and begged with all his heart to die. He said, death is better to me than life. He didn't want to keep being a prophet of God. He didn't want to keep living into his purpose, so he begged for God to take his life, which shows us that sloth believes that death is better than life. God wants to give all of you, myself included, a joy-filled, flourishing life. That's what he wants. But sometimes that means we have to do really hard things. And when those hard things come up, we would oftentimes rather choose death. We would rather choose what is easy. We would rather let relationships die than do the hard work of keeping them alive. We'd rather let our dreams die instead of pushing through the challenge. We would rather let our purpose, what we've been living for, die and stay dead instead of trying to find a better, lasting, God-given purpose. But Jesus shows us a better way. There was a point in which Jesus was faced with a very similar dilemma that Jonah was. Whenever he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Father was asking of him to do something very hard. And Jesus didn't want to do it. He said, Lord, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, please let this cup pass from me. But ultimately, he said, not my will, but your will be done. And that is what led him to the cross. Could you imagine with me for a second, what if Jesus was slothful? What if Christ chose to run from the cross? Because he could have. He could have been like Jonah and get out of Jerusalem. He could be like, I am not taking the blame for all of these people. They are not worth it. I am not going to suffer and die for something that they have done. I'm going to teach them that they reap what they sow. I'm going to teach them that they get what's coming to them. But that's not what Jesus is like. Jesus isn't like Jonah, praise God. While Jonah was ready for innocent people to take the blame for something that he had done, the innocent Christ took the blame of the whole world upon himself, dying for the world because he couldn't let us take the blame. And what we learn from Jesus is that we have to stop running from our cross and start embracing it. And what I mean by cross, I mean the good, hard, purposeful work that God is giving all of us. Saying yes to God whenever he calls on our name to act and further his kingdom. And this is such a serious thing, church. Jesus says that unless you carry your cross, you cannot be my disciple. This is a real thing. We need to be embracing our cross. 
So how do we do that? How do we stop running from our cross and start embracing it? First, I believe we need to trust that it's worth it. Because following the way of Jesus is hard. It is really hard. And true love and living for true love is extremely hard. And whenever things get hard for us, it's easy to question, is this even worth it? Is it even worth the fight? However, though we may question in the moment whether living like Jesus is worth it, over time, we're going to see that walking in the way of Jesus is what brings the most flourishing life. The cross brings transformation. And who we are on the other side of our cross are people of greater love. And the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us to become people more like Jesus, people of greater love. Another way that we see that it's worth it is from the fruit of living like Jesus. If we live for love and goodness, it makes the world around us a better place. It makes the world more like heaven, which is what Jesus was praying in the Lord's Prayer. It is, in my opinion, there, there is nothing more fulfilling than looking in the eyes of somebody and seeing their faith click for the first time and wanting to give their life to Jesus. There is nothing more beautiful than someone coming to realization about the identity that they have in Christ that sets them free. It is so beautiful to walk with people into freedom of all of the addictions and the sin cycles that they have going on in their life. I cannot imagine a more flourishing, fulfilling kind of work. And if that's not enough to convince you that following Jesus is worth it, if we look at Paul, who has a special knowledge of things to come, and he had a, a vision of heaven, he says this in Romans 8, verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings, or our cross, is not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Another way of thinking about this, the glory that is coming in us and for the world, what is coming is not even worth comparing to whatever suffering or whatever hardship we may face. It is 100% and totally worth it. It is worth surrendering to Jesus as Lord of the universe and giving our lives to him. Second, we have to find our rest in God and not in our distractions. If people think that sloth is simply laziness, then looking at people who observe the Sabbath, you probably think they're pretty lazy or pretty slothful. And in fact, Romans thought Jews were lazy because one of the seven days of the week they decided not to work. But Sabbath rest, true rest in general that is in God is one of the furthest things from sloth. First of all, because Sabbath and rest is something that is a God-given command for us, but also in a culture that idolizes production and money. Sabbath and observing the Sabbath and real rest, that is carrying our cross. That is a sacrifice. And if you notice, when did the change start happening in Jonah? It was while he was resting in the belly of a fish. And he had nothing but three days of that. It is so important for us to create a habit and a rhythm of good rest in our life. Because, as my wife said, if we don't tune in, we will check out. When we're not paying attention to what's going inside of us and in our worlds, we turn to escapism. 
Instead of spending time finding rest in the God of the universe, we turn to binge whatever our distraction is. Whoa. I think I was talking back to myself. Interesting. Um, <laughs> and then, um, sorry, that totally distracted me. However, uh, so Augustine, I've used this quote before. He argues that our souls are restless until they find our rest in God. Our problem is that we do not create much space to encounter that rest of God. We don't spend a lot of unhurried, undistracted time, but it is so good for us to sit in that undistracted state. And I know whenever you start doing it, it can feel torturous and boring. <laughs> like whenever you start really trying to live like Jesus and read scripture daily, pray daily, fast, spend time in solitude, observe the Sabbath, it can feel like pulling teeth. It can feel super challenging. But I promise you, what's on the other side of it is walking with the deepest intimacy with God. And it is so worth it. And walking with him is sweeter than honey. And lastly, whenever we're seeking to embrace the cross, we must realize that love requires discipline and commitment. Right? Love is not just this emotional state of feeling warm and fuzzy towards a person. That is so weak and that's going to fade so fast. Love is a rugged commitment through anything. And it's so important that we start accepting the discipline. That's part of, in the word of discipleship. To start modeling our lives around Jesus. Because like I said, what's on the other side of it is fulfillment. Is a refreshing of our souls. Is walking with true intimacy with God. And I want to be clear today, this morning. I'm not saying hobbies and watching TV is in and of itself sinful. But if we start turning to those things as an escape from the things we need to be doing, that's when it becomes sloth. That is sin. So church, it is so important for us this morning to pick up our cross. We must realize that following the way of Jesus means doing what is hard. Doing the hard work of empathy and love. Because for whatever reason, God has chosen to redeem the world, bring reconciliation to the world through us, through our lives, through our actions, which is humbling and also so beautiful that God entrusts so much to us, but also really scary, right? This is such a daunting task, and it's so important, and it may feel like it is impossible. There's no way I can do this on my own, and you're right. You can't. And that is exactly why God has given us his Holy Spirit. As a teacher, as a guide, to lead us to become people like Jesus. And discipleship is so important because of the mission of God that's ahead of us. And that's why here at Fourth Avenue, we're going to be focusing on discipleship in the coming years. Because it's the most important work that we can be doing. Because whenever we are representing Jesus, our actions or our inaction towards what God wants from us can contribute to the destruction of this world. Or it can contribute to the healing. So I think it's good for us to reflect, it's good for me to reflect and ask some questions. How am I actually living for Jesus? 
Like, what am I actually doing to better the world, to make God's kingdom come here? Am I coming to church just to check off a box? Am I coming to church just for an emotional high that's going to wear off for next week? What am I doing? And with my time, (laughs) am I serving people? Am I partnering with one of the great local ministries that we have going on here at Forth? And if I'm not, why am I not? Am I volunteering to help Fourth Avenue in some way and with some of my gifts and my time. If I'm not, why am I not? If I have these opportunities that present themselves before me to share my faith with someone and it's just set up on a tee, it's on a pedestal, but yet I shy away from it, why do I do that? And I'm not asking these questions to shame any of you. I'm asking myself these same questions, but it's so important for us to be able to become aware of the vice of sloth in our lives. Because it is so deeply ingrained. And the world is worse off whenever we choose to give into it. So may we grow more and more as disciples and followers and embodiments of Jesus and say yes to what God is asking of us. That we don't just know facts about the Bible, but we live it. God has freed us from our prison cells. We need to start walking out of it. And walk into that freedom. And as we say yes, God moves mightily. Captives find their freedom. The unseen are seen. Marriages are restored. The lost are found. There is no greater purpose. There is no greater mission in the world than the mission of God that has been established by Jesus. So may we stop saying no to what God has been entrusting us with. And start saying yes to the cross that God has for us. If there's any other things going on in your life this morning, if you want to confess your sin of sloth, if you want to start walking into the purpose for which you have been created, we would love to walk with you. And accountability is such an important part of that process. Because if it's up to you, you're just going to drift. So if there's anything that you need prayers for, anything going on in your life, things you want to celebrate, we're going to have people around the room to pray with you. And we thank you uh, so much for being vulnerable enough to even pray with people back here. Because I know a lot of people like to judge people for doing stuff. But thank you for finding healing. May we be a church that seeks to find healing for our souls. And we're going to end again in communal confession for sloth. So if y'all would go ahead and stand up. And if you feel like you struggle with this sin, which I would reckon it would be everybody. Um, Please read these words with me. Our Lord, we confess that we have rejected the good that you had in store for us. We have become callous and avoidant of the evil present in the world and in ourselves. We have taken the easy way out. Forgive us of our sin of sloth and transform our hearts to embrace our cross and walk in the love of Christ. Amen.